0: This is the Building a Leadership Culture podcast, hosted by Bruce Gresham, the Principal Strategic Advisor of Applied Vision Works. An in depth look at how Bruce and President Don Hadley help businesses reach their long term goals. Here's your host, Bruce Gresham. Welcome to Building a Leadership Culture podcast, brought to you by Applied Vision Works. I'm your host, Bruce Gresham, and I am so grateful to be a part of the Applied Vision Works team. We are a business coaching firm that partners with business owners and teams to build a better quality of life, stronger organizations, and attain greater achievements. You can learn more at AppliedVisionWorks.com or give me a call at 919-739-2980. Don Hadley, our founder, who's been working with companies in this capacity for over 35 years, uh, he has a great book called The Journey to Meaning. Not only is it a fun, quick story, but there's actually a lot of really good, useful worksheets at the end of each chapter that help business owners assess where their business currently stands and helps them determine their next steps in their journey. The first five folks who email me at bgresham at appliedvisionworks.com and request a copy of the book will receive a digital copy for free to read on their iPad or tablet of their choice. Really excited about the conversation that we have on the pod today. We have Alex Pantich, co-founder and chief operating officer of Upshift to discuss creating company culture with a changing workforce. Alex, welcome to the program. Hey, Bruce, thanks for having me on. Alex, you you guys are really really cool company and appreciate what you're doing to kind of innovate in your space of helping companies
1: with their hourly workforce. You know, tell us a little bit about Upshift as as well as your career. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess I'll start with my career because it ends at Upshift. My career really started when I was seven years old working at rental houses. My dad was a computer programmer at First Energy in Akron, but on the side, they owned about 10 or 15 rental houses, my parents'. And so every weekend I was spending fixing things up, and renovating them and cleaning them up. And I got my first real job when I was about 15 at Acme Fresh Markets, also in Akron, and worked there for the next six years throughout college while also doing landscaping on the side. And that's something that when we talk about building culture as a company, we look for at internal hires we try to hire people who had a job in high school. We found that a lot of times that's a good indicator of success, people who started working earlier in life versus people who didn't have their first job until they graduated college. After graduating from Ohio State, I moved to Eastern Europe for a few years. The first year I worked as a teacher, and then I was actually working as a journalist. And I realized when I was over there that there was a disconnect between the cost of websites and software development in the United States and wages in Macedonia, where I was living at the time. So I actually started a web design and software development company with Upshift's current CTO, Nick Jordanovsky, and moved back to the States to do sales for that. Moved in with my parents and started driving their car around. But within about two months, we're making enough money. I was able to get my own car and move back out. And one of our first, I think, 10 clients was Steven Evsky, who's Upshift's current CEO. And Steve brought me the idea for Upshift. And at the time, Steve was a very successful business person in the Cincinnati area. He's about five years older than me. And my thought was, if this guy is this successful, he's bringing me an idea better run with it and try and make it work. So Nick and I put the software development, web development business to the side and decided to focus solely on Upshift. And we got into the brandery accelerator. And since then we have just been growing. We started off focused on hospitality staffing because Steve owned a number of bars and restaurants and that was a pain point for him. We realized very quickly that bars and restaurants were not a good target market for us but large hospitality venues are stadiums, convention centers, third-party caterers, wedding halls. And after about six months of being in the market, helping hospitality businesses with staffing, we realized that warehouse fulfillment and manufacturing, light manufacturing businesses had the same issues with finding hourly workers. Um, And so we started serving them as well. And we found that there was a really nice overlap for them a lot of them really liked getting people from the hospitality industry coming to work for them and we found that people in the hospitality industry didn't realize that instead of making tipped minimum wage plus tips which could change every day you know working in the evenings they could instead be working at a warehouse and making 14 15 bucks an hour and have the same hours every day know exactly what they're going to make we found a lot of people moving into the warehouse and fulfillment sector Um, who never would have gone into it, but who realized it was a great fit for them. Um, And especially mothers. Um, Mothers moving out of the hospitality industry has been a big trend that we have seen because those shifts in manufacturing, warehouse, and fulfillment a lot of times allow them to be at work while their children are at school and then be home by the time they get back instead of working in the evenings while their children are back. And that's one of the reasons our workforce is about 62% female. Um, and if you compare that to other gig economy companies like an Uber or Lyft, um, it's over double. Uber's workforce is only about 19% female and Lyft's is only about 30%. Um, and we found that us offering that surety of knowing how much you're going to make and also knowing that you're going into a safe working environment is huge for women and is a big reason that we have lots of women working on upshift. And we have found that you know, our model of allowing people to work relatively flexibly pulls a lot of people into our platform who may not sign up for a traditional staffing agency, um, but once they get on to upshift thinking that they were only going to work part-time at the zoo on the weekends and they see a full-time temp-to-perm role at a manufacturing facility down the road where they'd be making more than their regular job and the only thing they have to do to work there is hit an apply button, we see a lot of people who weren't necessarily looking to switch careers end up switching them because of how easy upshift makes it. So even though we're kind of classed as gig economy and most of our advertising focuses on flex shifts, over 50% of our business is really temp to perm staffing um, for manufacturing and fulfillment.
0: I can't wait to kind of dig into how you've really modernized and and innovated in the, the staffing space. But with the topic being around company culture, what have been the two to three critical success factors in maintaining upshifts culture while you've grown?
1: I would separate our culture into two buckets. The first is our our internal employees. So those are our employees who are working in our offices, who are supporting upshifters, who are supporting businesses, who are developing our product. And for our internal employees, the three key things, I think uh, the first one has been really leading by example. If you tell people to do things and then you aren't willing to put your money where your mouth is, they very quickly see that and other people aren't going to commit to something you aren't willing to commit to, to yourself. So we've been very conscious of making sure that everyone sees us in the trenches too, that we're not saying no to hard work, that we're always available when they need help. Because if people feel like leadership isn't there, they're not going to be there for the rest of their team members. The second thing is really constant explanation of why we're doing things, even though it may seem self-explanatory to myself or our CEO or another leader on the team, to the people working on the ground level, they might not see everything that we see. And so constantly explaining to them why we're doing stuff, why it's valuable, why it's going to help customers or upshifters is important because they might not... Be able to see it otherwise. And once people understand why something is important, they become much more invested in it. And that leads me to the last point, which is really oversharing. We try to share as much with our internal team members as we can so that they have a good idea of where the business is and the data that we're using to make decisions on what we're doing. And, you know, one example of that is. Every month when we complete our financials, our P&L, we share it with all of our full-time internal employees. And I don't know of a lot of other companies that do that, but we found that it keeps everyone invested because they can see exactly what's going on behind the scenes, where we're making investments, where we're spending most money, and where we're seeing a return on it.
0: I love that idea of sharing the P&L, the top and bottom line and where investments are going with everybody in the company. It really cements folks into the company, gives them an idea of what's going on. And in a way, even though it's not their money, gives them a greater understanding for where you're headed, where you're going and what money's being spent on.
1: How did you guys come to that that idea of sharing that P&L? Yes. I mean, one of our biggest things from the beginning has been fostering ownership mentality. So we, we kind of get lumped into the startup or gig economy bucket But we prefer to think of ourselves more along the lines of business leaders like Sam Walton or Les Schwab, who built these large scale traditional businesses, but did it in a a way where they fostered ownership mentality in order to grow. You know, one of the companies that I really admire is the Les Schwab Tire Company out on the West Coast. And one of their biggest things is sharing that P&L with every employee. And I learned it by reading a book that their founder wrote. And they said that that makes a huge difference. One of the other things that they did that we do in a way is a profit sharing program based on that P&L with all of their employees. Our way of doing that is all of our full-time employees are eligible to own part of the company. And so most people who have been here over a year own a piece of the company and our earliest employees own significant portion of the company. So we found when someone has that ownership stake and they also can see data um, that they can then use to make decisions to influence the value of that ownership. People are always going to be rowing the same oars and be pushing the business in the same direction, which is success.
0: Your one note about oversharing things, it's really about communication. And there used to be that old adage where you'd have to communicate something in different ways about seven times for it to stick with someone or for someone to be able to make a buying decision if if you're in advertising but nowadays, with social media, radio, TV, other traditional media, that's really more like 12 to 15 times that you've got to make that communication to people. And then, especially when you think of the different generations that are in the workforce, it is really critical to overshare, over communicate, to really build a, a strong, large team across the different generations and different parts of the workforce.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and you know, as as another old adage goes, actions speak louder than words. And a lot of times actions can communicate the behaviors that you want to have in other people. And, you know, one example I can give about this for us is we've encouraged everyone to take an ownership mentality about our offices. And so our largest offices, one is in Skopje, North Macedonia, and one of them is in Cincinnati, Ohio. And in both offices, we actually clean the office ourselves we take out the trash ourselves everything and our leadership team is also on the cleaning schedule so our CEO is taking out trash once a month and it means a lot to people when they see leadership doing those types of tasks because they know that hey if they're not above anything I'm also not above anything and we're all here to make this a success
0: yeah that's that's an excellent point you know one thing that you said earlier was around you like to identify folks, who worked in high school and how important that is to future success. How did you come come about that realization?
1: I looked at a lot of the people who I've I've come to respect in the workplace and people who I've seen be successful in business or other arenas and I realized that a common thread for most of us was that our parents had us start working early or we were forced by circumstances to start working early. And getting into the workforce early, I think, especially in those hourly roles, gives you an appreciation for the people who do that kind of work every day. And it also is humbling. And I think it gives you a drive and a motivation to say, you know, I respect everyone who does this every day, but I'm going to work my butt off because I want to do something else. We've noticed that a lot of the people who didn't have those jobs in high school or college, weren't forced to, a lot of them have a sense of entitlement from what we've seen. And it, it makes some sense because they've been given everything in life. They went through their basically 22 years without having to make any money of their own in order to finance their life. And then
0: <laughs> they don't know about the taxes that are taken out, that whether it's Medicare, social security, et cetera. Learning that at 22 really puts you at a disadvantage versus learning it at 14, 15, 16. You know yeah. some of my favorite moments from growing up were actually from my summer and weekend jobs, whether it was, you know being a plumber's helper in the family plumbing, you know, new construction business, whether it was working at McDonald's, I was a killer front drive-through person, Alex. I was like one of the best ever. And uh, then actually also as a freelance writer for the local newspaper, the Charlotte Observer, those three jobs in different ways really set me up for success in college and and beyond. And ultimately that freelance work that I was doing for the Charlotte Observer newspaper set me up to have a job there in college, work in the sports department, ultimately meet my wife and really set me on a pretty awesome course. What was your summer jobs or jobs in in high school, middle school, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah. So I, I mean, I started when I was seven or eight working at our rental houses And obviously as a seven or eight year old, you can't do much other than hold a flashlight and rocks around, but it starts you off with a work ethic because you see your parents busting their asses. And that's just the example that you've got to live by, especially when they expect the same of you. When I was 15, my mom said, uh, you need to go work for someone else, not just us. And Mm -hmm. I couldn't drive yet because I was 15 So she started driving me around to places near our house uh, to pick up job applications. And I was fortunate enough to get a job at Acme Fresh Market, which is a grocery store up in Northeast Ohio, family owned grocery store. And I worked there all throughout high school, but I also was doing landscaping on the side because the Acme work was steady, but landscaping, I mean, you could make effectively 30 bucks an hour doing landscaping if you're doing it for yourself, which I was just putting up retaining walls, cutting down trees, those kinds of things.
0: Awesome. That's that's great. And so let's shift back to upshift if you will and you're really disrupting this space around staffing temp agencies, that kind of thing. What are kind of the core tenets of your business and and how you've grown over, you know, the past few years as you've gone from kind of a startup to a to a more stable business.
1: I think one one of our core tenants really goes back to culture and the culture of the upshifters. So if you look at traditional temp agencies and the type of culture that they end up fostering, it usually ends up being somewhat counterproductive for their client. And the reason I say that is a couple fold. So on the front end, agencies a lot of the time can only attract people who want to work 40 hours a week on very short notice anywhere the agency sends them to. And if you think about people you've had work for you or people you've worked with, people who are willing to just be sent somewhere on no notice for 40 hours a week and not have a choice in where, a lot of times probably aren't going to be the best worker. They're going to be the most desperate worker. And because agencies can really, for the most part, only access that pool of labor they don't have an ability to do a ton of vetting because they have a very limited pool of people who they can hire. And so generally you'll see with staffing agencies that they don't do any front end vetting other than maybe a drug test. So people can just walk in and get hired the same day. And usually you'll see their offices are next to a check cashing place because they're looking for people who need money right away. We on the other hand have taken a different approach saying, hey, We're going to offer a lot of shifts that are flexible short term because that's attractive to a lot more people, people who already have jobs, which is a lot of times is going to be a better worker. And because we're accessing a wider pool of people, we're going to do a lot of vetting on the front end. So our vetting process screens out about 88% of applicants, which is very different from a temp agency where anyone can walk through the door. And so for us, that's a big part of maintaining culture is on the front end screening who's going to get into Upship. And now we, we do that in a couple different ways. The first is a personality assessment, which people take online. It takes about seven minutes. And this assessment isn't testing for IQ. It's testing for reliability, work ethic, and ability to work with others. We screen out about 35% of people with that assessment. The second part of our process is having someone come in in person to our office. They have to schedule a specific time to do that. So if you're getting hired by a temp agency, they'll just say, hey, we're open eight to five, come in anytime. And now that agency has not vetted if that person can show up somewhere on time, which is someone who's used staffing in the past, you know how important it is that people get there on time and ready to work. So we have specific times they have to come. They schedule, say one o'clock. If they get there at 106, we're sending them home. They're going to have to reschedule. Same thing if they show up without a mask on currently during COVID, or if they show up in improper attire, or without the proper IDs because we e-verify everyone. Once they complete that onboarding, they're able to become an upshifter. But that whole process screens out about 88% of people. And then once they're on upshift, they're subject to our disciplinary policies, which is the second part of how we really enforce culture for our upshifters, is our disciplinary policies and our accountability policies. The first portion of that is discipline. We have a strict three-strike policy. If you get three strikes, you get kicked off upshift for the rest of your life because we verify people. For us, one no-call, no-show is an automatic three strikes. You cannot use upshift again for the rest of your life. You can also get strikes for a number of other things. We find that generally staffing companies don't enforce disciplinary policies if they do have them. And the reason being, if you're a recruiter at a staffing company, which is how they all operate, it's like travel agencies in the 90s, they don't use computers, they use recruiters. And so these recruiters make commission every time that someone goes and works. If you're a recruiter and you know that John only shows up to two out of every five shifts, for you, that's a 40% chance you make commission when you call John and tell him to go somewhere. That's way better than a lottery ticket, right? 40% chance of making money. Why are you gonna fire John? But on the other hand, as a client, that's a 60% chance that John doesn't show up. Are you happy as a client that you're being sent someone who has a more of a chance of not showing up than showing up? Probably not, right? And we find that not enforcing those disciplinary policies encourages people to act poorly. Whereas on our end, if you act poorly, to a large degree, you're just going to get fired. And other people who see that are going to notice and say, hey, I don't want to get fired like that guy did. I'm going to act differently. And the second part of accountability feeds into that, which is ratings and reviews. Every time you work somewhere, you get rated. And it's very different from an agency where you could go to five different places and none of them knows about your track record prior to coming to them. With upshift, you're able as a business to see that upshifter's track record on upshift. For upshifters, it means a lot because having five stars versus four stars could be the difference between getting accepted for a position that pays well and positions that don't pay well. So every time they're working, there are eyes on them and it affects their ability to make money in the future if they don't get a good rating.
0: You had mentioned kind of your dual cultures, if you will, in UpShift, one with kind of your regular employees who are, you know, helping run the platform, helping upshifters get onboarded, that kind of thing, and then the upshifters themselves. How do you take into account your clients or your customers culture in all these different cities? when you're finding up shifters and, and bringing them on board?
1: For most of our clients, culture can vary based on the, the facility, the type of work they're doing, the managers there. So we find that it's good to bring on a wide and diverse variety of upshifters because different clients are gonna have different needs and different people are gonna feel comfortable in different places, right? We find that there are instances where we might have an upshifter who was hopping from business to business to business for months and they said, hey, I don't want a full-time job, I just wanna keep working flexibly. And then one month it just clicks. They find the place where they just feel so comfortable. They love the manager. They love their coworkers and they switch to a, a permanent role there. It's hard to vet and know that on the front end for each client specifically. We find that the best solution is just to have a wide variety and array of people working on Upshift and the people who like A certain culture are usually going to find that culture we found.
0: Alex, thank you so much. This concludes part one of building a leadership culture podcast, where we're speaking about creating company culture with a changing workforce. In part two, Alex, I'm really looking forward to diving into your uh, Forbes.com article in regards to hourly wage inflation and, and how to handle it in this post COVID world. Thank you for joining me, Alex. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Building a Leadership Culture Podcast with Applied Vision Works Principal Strategic Advisor Bruce Gresham. Questions, concerns, please email Craig Chase at chase at appliedvisionworks.com or call 800 786 4332. This has been an exclusive presentation of 680 WPTF and Applied Vision Works.